This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Ursula Vernon, author of Harriet the Invincible, explains why a cheeky hamster is the perfect princess. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot recaps PW's Audio Summit. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Mark, what do we got in the nonfiction side of things? Well, number four, we have internet sensation Felicia Day. You're never weird on the internet, almost, in parens, a memoir. It's at number four. This is from an online, the, the online entertainment, self-described mogul, actress, and queen of the geeks, talking about her life growing up, homeschooled, and how she made it to Hollywood through via the internet. So that's at number four. Lots of readers there. At number 10, The Micronutrient Miracle, The 28-Day Plan to Lose Weight, Increase Your Energy, and Reduce Disease. This is by husband-wife authors Jason and Mira Calton. And our review said they fell in love and married after uh, Mira's advanced osteoporosis improved following, sorry, adjacent after following Mira's adoption of Jason's micronutrient method. They traveled the world and they came to the conclusion one specific diet or country of residence is less important to one's health than the amount of micronutrients in one's food. I'll try not to say that word anymore during this, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> what we say is whether or not avid dieters fully accept the dire warnings given here, they should appreciate this comprehensive plan for choosing locally grown rich foods. So that's at number 10. Number 21, Five Minutes with Jesus, Making Today Matter. Uh, there's been a couple of religious books on the uh, uh, and spirituality books on the list. Uh, this one is uh, A Thin Devotional Guide by best-selling author Sheila Walsh, uh, who's the author of The Storm Inside. She encourages Christians to spend five minutes a day with God, since God, quote, can do more with us in five minutes than if we spend five hours on our own. We say she doesn't veer from what, for her, are simple truths, which her many followers will appreciate and enjoy. Next up, a parenting book, The Me, Me, Me Epidemic, a step-by-step guide to raising capable, grateful kids in an over-entitled world at number 24 by Amy McReady. She's the author of, if I have to tell you one more time, she noticed a disturbing trend that the epidemic of, what she calls an epidemic of entitled children who are demanding and spoiled. We say uh, that she covers a wealth of other suggestions for helping kids become unentitled. She gives a whole lesson, spent 10 minutes a day giving each child complete, undivided attention. So here they say the user-friendly guide is, our review says, uh, is overflowing with practical, creative, and thoughtful strategies. And this has been a trend of books. Uh, I was going to say, that's that's a complaint I've heard a whole lot, but yeah, you hear it about everyone yeah. from elementary schoolers to college kids. So. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And now this is kind of, there's been a, quite a few books on how to empower your kids by not making every decision for them and by letting them fail on their own. And finally, at number 31, we have Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill uh, writing with Terry Ganey. Plenty Lady, like her memoir uh, about everything from her childhood up to uh, her current um, 
uh, uh, senatorship in, in Missouri. Uh, we say her memoir is straightforward, plain spoken, and at once deeply personal and thoroughly political. That sounds like Claire McCaskill. Yeah. I, I follow her on Twitter and her, her Twitter account is just the same. Like you can tell it's really her. It's not written by her <laughs> staff um, and right, it is right. very personal and also very political. She's great. <laughs> she, she remembers as seven year old, uh, uh, on Halloween, she said, trick or treat and vote for JFK. <laughs> she recalls <laughs> yeah. saying, yeah, so, sounds right. Great. Well, uh, over on the, the fiction side, um, the top three are, uh, pretty much, where they were, uh, a little bit of shifting around, but still Harper Lee, Paula Hawkins, and now James Patterson mm-hmm. joins them in the, the top spot. And uh, number four, we have Silver Linings, a new Debbie McComber book. This is the fourth uh, women's fiction title in her Rose Harbor series, and uh, set in a little town called Cedar Cove, and uh, follows the the adventures of three women as they try and figure out their personal lives. Uh, she's always, always on the bestseller list. Every new book, yeah. uh, a huge following uh, and they're lovely books. So this is uh, silver linings at number four and just below it at number five, who do you love by Jennifer Weiner? Uh, it's about two people who keep encountering each other in chance encounters again and again and again throughout their lives and uh, they have to eventually figure out whether they can build a life together. Uh, no review of that one yet from PW, but uh, it's there at number five on the bestseller list. And then uh, we have to skip down a ways to find our next new book on the list. At number 15 is Devil's Bridge by Linda Fairstein. And uh, this is her 17th novel featuring uh, ADA Alexandra Cooper hmm. after uh, Terminal City in 2014. We say this one is subpar and uh, that the series fans may enjoy the glimpse into the past of uh, another popular character in the series and uh, that you know, maybe there's some promise here for future installments, but this particular one uh, sometimes becomes didactic. Uh, and then moving down to number 17 is Fool's Quest, the Fits in the Fool trilogy book two by Robin Hobb. Um, Hobb has been writing fantasy for a very, very long time, and it's lovely to see her books kind of back in the spotlight after she took some... Mm time away and uh, this is the second in the Fits and the Fool fantasy trilogy but those build on her uh, popular characters created decades ago and uh, our review says uh, there's a little bit of sluggishness in some places a bit of reliance uh, on using magic to move the plot forward but her expertise as a writer is evident as always and this is a complex tapestry of adventure betrayal, destiny and unrelenting peril that's it. Number 17. Great. And then down at 23, The End of All Things by John Scalzi. Um, he's been in the news somewhat. He, uh, he, he wrote a 10-book deal with Tor Books for over a million dollars, and uh, 10 books over 13 years. Wow. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite, it was quite an event when the news of that broke. He's currently touring to support this book, which is the latest in his Old Man's mm-hmm. War space opera series. He's also wow. tremendously popular on social media. He's got a blog he's been keeping for 17 years and uh, a Twitter account with... Uh, hundreds and thousands of followers i guess it's probably over a million followers actually so um he's he's quite the phenomenon and uh to top it all off he's actually a really good writer uh we gave this a starred (laughs) review great it's four connected novellas uh which are sort of expanding 
the the old man's war space opera setting. Um, so lots of diplomacy, lots of interstellar warfare, lots of sort of inside look at this futuristic military where um, once you've aged beyond a certain point, you you sign up to get a fresh new body and uh, join the military. And it's right. it's uh, it it will be interesting to see where things go from here because the cracks are really starting to show in these big interstellar mm-hmm. communities that are battling one another. Uh, our review says that Scalzi knows just how to satisfy his fans, providing tense, thrilling action scenes while turning a critical eye on the interstellar equivalents of the military-industrial complex. So something for everyone there. Um, and then just below it at number 29, uh, Long Upon the Land by Margaret Maron. Uh, we also gave this a star. Mm-hmm. It's her 20th Deborah Knott mystery. And it combines, uh, according to the PW Review, strong plotting, a superb cast of recurring characters, and a rare sense of place that really transports readers to rural North Carolina. And... Uh, you know, we say this is just another sparkling chapter of the not family saga and you know, just uh, probably one mostly for the fans, but the fans should be very happy with it. Scooting down the list a bit, uh, Brown Eyed Girl by Lisa Clayfass is at uh, number 39. I know a lot of people who jumped up and squealed when this came out. She's a very popular mm-hmm. romance author. And uh, we say this is a very satisfying book. It concludes a quartet of mystery or sorry, of romance novels um, set in Texas. And it's just a very sweet contemporary story um, about a wedding planner who was herself jilted at the altar. And so she helps other people plan their weddings, but has no hopes of her own. Uh, And then uh, one day she falls in love with a wedding guest at one of the weddings that she's working on. And uh, we say this fun tale stands on its own, but the author also provides satisfying glimpses of the happily paired off protagonists of the earlier books in the series. So everyone who's been following these stories will definitely want to grab this one. And that's what we've got uh, on the fiction list. So lots of things happening. I think uh, we're going to start seeing those big fall books coming in soon. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's going to be exciting. Next two, three weeks, exactly. Mm -hmm. Starting to come on. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ursula Vernon tells us about turning fairy tales inside out. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Naomi Barron, author of Words on Screen, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Ursula Vernon on the line. Her new book is Harriet the Invincible. Ursula, I'm so glad you could join us. Oh, happy to be here. So Harriet is a hamster. Tell us a little bit about her and the story that surrounds her. Well, the the overall series is called Hamster Princess because she is a fearsome warrior princess who's also a hamster. And uh, she rides her her faithful battle coil, Mumfrey. And uh, I watched a lot of Xena in college. What can I say? (laughs) And so the story is, is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty, except instead of pricking her finger on a spinning wheel, it was a hamster wheel. And it kind of went sideways after that, and it ends up with everyone in the castle being asleep except Harriet, and she has to go find a way to break the curse that has enchanted everyone, and, uh, well, she and her quail. Her her battle quail. Her battle quail, yes. I... 
I had a lot of fun drawing Moultrie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us about the curse. And why she uh, might be excited. Well, the, uh, the curse is is the standard Sleeping Beauty curse that when she's 12 years old, she will fall into a sleep like death, etc., etc. But the thing about curses is they, they have to come true. They, they really, really want to come true. And Harriet works out that this means she has to be alive on her 12th birthday and in position to have the curse take place. And she extrapolates. That means she is effectively invincible until she is 12. She's uh, because, you know, she can't die or the curse won't take effect. And so she takes up cliff diving and jousting and slaying dragons and all sorts of very dangerous physical activities because she's invincible. <laughs> so tell us about these, the cliff diving and the, and the dragon slaying. Uh, well, the, uh, the, uh, a lot of the monsters are like big ogre cats. She does slay a couple of dragons, um, and, uh, she takes up cliff diving, which she had always wanted to do, and her mother completely forbade her. She said that princesses didn't go cliff diving, and Harriet said that she bet lemming princesses went cliff diving, and, uh, <laughs> but, so, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with the rodents. Um, so... Obviously, Harriet is not your typical princess. Is she sort of aware of these pressures to to be a certain kind of princess, to fit the princess mold? Is she deliberately going against that? She is She is largely aware of them, but uh, because people keep telling her that she, what she is doing is not a thing princesses do, and she, her opinion is she is a princess and she is doing it, ergo, it is a thing that princesses do. And uh, she's aware of the pressures, but pretty much contemptuous of them. She, she has a very strong personality. I see that. Um, so our review says that uh, you shift between prose passages and indigo tinted cartoon sequences. Tell us a little bit about that coming from an arts background, how, uh, how you worked together with the words and the artwork. Well, uh, this is the style that we started doing in the Dragon Breath books, which was the series I did before this one. And it's a uh, hybrid chapter novel is the technical term, I think, um, where we have it's it's arranged like a chapter book, but there are large chunks where it goes into illustrations and uh, comics, you know, with with action and uh, panels uh, with the word balloons. And one of the things was that uh, they are set up so that kids who find a wall of text intimidating never are at a point where they open the book and see only text. There's always a picture or a comic passage somewhere on one of the pages. So they're very popular among reluctant readers or kids who have learned to see reading as an instrument of torture or whatever. Right. So, so tell us more about um, how you came up with the idea why hamster and why sleeping beauty ah uh, <laughs> people keep asking me this and i really need to invent a much better story <laughs> because i actually can't remember i think i was making a joke off a hamster wheel and a spinning wheel and it sort of started there but my memory is that I just sat down and started writing and uh, every now and again, I will get an idea and I will just go with it. And I wound up writing the, the first draft in uh, like two days, not with the art, obviously, but, but just the script. And it, it all just seemed to flow logically. You know, one thing led to the next, led to the next. And then people are like, how did you get there? And I'm like, 
at at the time it made total sense. <laughs> I was sitting that's, in that's a your Starbucks. battle cry. Yeah. <laughs> I I kept ordering lattes and then there was a book. I, I don't know. So what what comes first for you usually? Is it the uh the characters, the drawing, uh that, that then tells the story or do you have a narrative set? Uh, I actually have to write the script first, um, and part of that is purely practical because if you're going to, because uh, Annette, my editor, will come in and make changes, and if I've already drawn the pictures for that, I will have to change the pictures, and it is much harder to change art than it is to change words. Right. So uh, just as a matter of practicality, I always write the script first. But a lot of times it seems like I start a book by setting the stage, and then the character just kind of comes on, and after that I'm just sort of running along behind them trying to catch up and taking dictation. Uh, it, it's you, you set everything up and then you let the characters go and then you just try to bring it to a close after 16 or 17,000 words. And cackling all the way, I'm sure. There is occasionally cackling. So, I mean, it's like any other form of writing. Sometimes there's cackling. Sometimes you're sitting there with your head in your hands going, oh, God, why didn't I become a medical test subject? But uh, <laughs> mostly there's cackling. So um, what I, this, this is one of those tricky questions. I'm not going to say what's your favorite part, but what parts of making these books do you particularly enjoy? Uh there's there's a bit that comes usually at about either the halfway or the two-thirds point where all of a sudden something that I threw in not knowing where it was going earlier in the book makes sense, and I see how it gets me to the end, and I love that, and I do the, ha-ha, I am a genius, and uh, and thing, which makes up for the rest of the book where I'm going... I am I am a total failure. I can't make this book work. I don't know why this is happening to me. Um, so standard author stuff. Right. Yeah. That, that moment of realization definitely sounds more fun than the, the deep despair. Yes. Yes. The despair is bad. Um, the... I also like, uh, just for my own amusement, into the children's books, I will throw in usually references to uh, science fiction geek things. And there aren't so many in Harriet, I don't think, although I, I had fun in some of the opening. There is a, uh, uh, at the, the christening where she's cursed by the, the wicked fairy Ratshade. Um, I have a, uh, the, all the various nobles in the kingdom are there. And there's also someone who is a Roman praetor who has wandered in from another kingdom because he heard there was free food and is sitting there in the corner going, I can't believe my people never conquered yours when we had the chance. <laughs> and so things like that make me very happy. I don't know how much kids enjoy them, but the parents who have to read the books aloud to the kids frequently tell me they liked it. So I, I think that's what can be especially great about uh children's books or at least about you know really great children's book is one who has two kids to to be able to read a book on on both the adult you know appreciate it on both the adult and the child level yeah yeah um when i read uh, the, the dragon breath books have a lot of of geek jokes there is there is one of them where uh wendell the iguana wakes up screaming there are four lights and um <laughs> I every time I read that passage to an audience, all the adults crack up. And, like, how did they let you do that? Well, it fit the story. It made logical sense. So before I, I, I had asked why the hamster, maybe I a question might have been, um, 
why animals? What what draws you to uh, to to uh, to to animals as as characters in your books? Humans are hard to draw. <laughs> Sorry, I, I should have a really good line about, you know, the, the mythic quality of animals and fables and, and anthropomorphism. But no, humans are really hard to draw. Um, it's, it's much easier to draw little dragons and iguanas and hamsters. And when I have to draw approximately 150 illustrations per book, I like something that can be simplified down to very easy lines and if the eye is in a slightly different place from one panel to the next it doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies with humans you know you you the proportions all fall in a very narrow range or else it's very uncanny valley with hamsters whatever (laughs) (laughs) so uh obviously you're you're doing yourself some favors here but it sounds like uh you've got a huge audience for this we gave this a starred review uh the dragon breath books are doing really well uh, are there kids in your life that you kind of run the stories past before you commit them? Uh, not really. Um, my my husband has two sons by a previous marriage, but they they have aged out of the uh, the range. They're they're seventeen and uh, almost fourteen now, so they're not really that good as a test audience anymore. <laughs> I actually frequently run them by my husband, who had to read a lot of children's books, you know, during the the uh, formative years there. And he's uh, he's very good at spotting things that he's like, they're going to make you take this out. And I'm like, why would they make me take that? I was like, nope, they will make you take this bit out. This is too weird, too violent, too whatever. <laughs> and the editor, I said, I'm like, no, they won't. I send it out. My editor has a no going, you got to take this bit out. <laughs> So he has a much better grasp than I do of uh, what is appropriate children's literature, apparently. Or or at least what publishers think is appropriate children's literature. I'm sure there are some kids out there who would be happy to have the super gross stuff that oh, you they, know, might they, gross they, out the parents. Love, you know, violence happening to the bad guys and gross things and weird things. But you still have to go through the gatekeepers. Right. That makes perfect sense. So how, how did you get started with doing this? The children's books how'd you get past that gatekeeper the first time uh largely by accident um the people ask me how you get published as a children's book author and i am always forced to explain that my my experience would not work for anyone else uh i was doing a lot of, i was mostly an illustrator i was doing a web comic uh called digger and i had all of these paintings online that had weird little stories underneath them. And a friend of mine who's a romance author told a story to an agent and at dinner and the agent called me and, and looked at the art and then called me and was like, can you write children's books? And I was like, that might be a thing I could do. Sure. Um, and so she's like, okay, write a children's book based on this painting here. And I was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> Spoken like a true freelancer. I could do yeah. that. Sure. <laughs> Let me go find out how to I do that. I had no experience at all with writing for children. I, you know, noodled around writing, writing, you know, bad fantasy novels, none of which had ever been published. And so she said, I, I was trying to figure out how long I should ask for, for the deadline. 
because uh, thinking as a freelancer that, of course, there is a deadline on this. It, it won't be just hand me the book whenever it's done. So I said, can I have eight weeks? And she, or can I have six weeks? And she said, why don't you take eight? And I was like, okay, good. Then I'll have some time for revision. So I wrote a children's book very quickly in like five weeks, sent it in for edits and uh, she sold it. And apparently that was what I was meant to do with my life. So uh, this is not how it normally works for anyone. So, And I'm sorry, what children's book was that? Uh, that was called Nurk, the uh, strange, surprising adventures of a somewhat brave shrew. It, it's a very sweet, slightly weird little book about a shrew who goes on an adventure in a, in a boat made out of a snail shell and meets dragonflies, which are these sort of insect dragons, and has to rescue a dragonfly prince from a evil mole wizard. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was sweet. It sank like a rock <laughs> but the editor who was working on it went off to penguin and bought dragon breath so it's a happy story at the end we're going to take a quick break but don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com pw radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news pw editors rose fox and mark rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ursula Vernon, author of Harriet the Invincible and many other books for kids. Now, you're a birder, and uh, your mention of dragonflies reminded me also that you've been posting photographs of all of these wonderful insects and other creatures that you see in your garden. Did that happen before or after you were uh, sort of illustrating animals for a living? Uh, I think they... That's a good question. Um... I think I was drawing a lot of animals for a living first. I didn't really get into birds until I moved into a... Uh, I, I was starting to when I lived in Arizona, and then I moved into a duplex in North Carolina that had this huge balcony off the back. And if I put up a bird feeder, all of these birds came to it, and I stared at them, and I asked the fatal question, which is, I wonder what that bird is. And once you have asked that question, you, you are doomed. It is, it is a long <laughs> slide into becoming a bird watcher. And uh, I took up gardening, and then I I am on this sort of weird quest to document every species that shows up in the garden. I'm nearly at 500 species. Most of them are moths. And mm. so I take a lot of pictures of bugs and get very excited about them. And most of my friends online are very patient about how excited I get about bugs. And when I'm going, look, it's a red-footed cannibal fly which is a type of robber fly that's huge and they will attack hummingbirds sometimes. They're really wow. horrifying. <laughs> so this garden, tell me a little bit about the garden. Is it vegetable, uh, flowers? How big is it? And do you spend time uh, well, there writing? <laughs> we're on two and a half acres, but most of that is trees. It's right. uh, There's a fair, there, there, there's some small vegetable beds, but mostly it's flowers. I'm into uh, native plants and whatnot. So I grow a lot of things that, are weird and not really great <laughs> ornamentals. They're kind of ugly, but they belong here, so I'm going to plant them. And uh, I get some very interesting bugs as a result. If you plant things that moths can lay caterpillar eggs on, then you get very strange different moths, and some of which are extremely poisonous and stingy. And 
it's always fun. I wear gloves. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is there going to be a, a moth series somewhere down the line? A, a dragonfly series? <laughs> I have been pitching a book about uh, about a a girl who it, it falls into another world where they ride giant moths around for years it's basically like a horse book where the girl bonds with the horse except she <laughs> bonds with a giant sphinx moth and it's this weird version of fairyland where you know fairies are riding giant herons around but they're feeding them political prisoners because they're meat eaters and in retrospect i just realized why no one's bought that book <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Any editors listening? I'm flexible on the political prisoner part. <laughs> so, uh, so no one's no one's picked that up inexplicably. Uh, it's possible it's a little too violent now that I think about it. <laughs> but it sounds like something that could work for adults. Have you ever um, thought of sort of taking the the illustrated style, the hybrid novel style, and uh, and doing a book for adults? Uh I've I once or twice I've thought about it. The big problem is is just time. It um it takes me so long to do a a book like Dragon Breath or Hamster Princess where cuz you know writing the story takes maybe 6 weeks, but illustrating it takes 3 to 4 months. Mm. And we're on a fairly rapid turnaround, so it's very rare that I just happen to have a stretch where I can sit down and illustrate a uh, a thing for grownups. Uh, it's it's honestly faster just to write books for adults instead of trying to illustrate them too. Sometimes I can't even eke out time to do my own book covers. <laughs> and you are writing books for adults. You're publishing them under the name T. Kingfisher. Where did where did that come from? Huh. Uh, I like Kingfishers and uh, it was I, I wanted a pen name that was obviously a pen name and a little silly and uh, a friend of mine really wanted us to be the Super Volcano Sisters, but I just didn't think Super Volcano would work as my pen name. So uh, <laughs> I, I put a T on it as a kind of gender neutral, and people are occasionally like, what does the T stand for? And I'm like, well, it's either the or Terrence. I haven't decided. So, But yes, I have written a couple of uh, books for adults under that name, and I keep writing short stories, and I keep thinking I should totally do this under the T. Kingfisher name. And then they keep getting published as Ursula Vernon, and someday someone will find them and be very confused. <laughs> and you also created the webcomic Digger, which won a Hugo Award and was nominated for the Eisner Award. Tell us a little about Digger. Oh, uh, Digger was one of those projects that if I had known how big it was going to be, I would never have started it because just the, the scope would have overwhelmed me. But fortunately, I had no idea. Uh, it uh, wound up being almost 800 pages long, and I ran it as a webcomic uh, updating twice a week for uh, many, many years. And it is the story of a wombat who is underground and digging and hits a patch of weird magic and winds up coming up in a temple of the god Ganesh and in a very strange sort of alternate reality that is not quite... She doesn't know how to get home from where she is. There are hyena gods and uh, little strange shadow creatures wandering around. And it's uh, she is this very pragmatic, solid character who is going around, you know, trying to save the day in a really weird place that she is not entirely comfortable with. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, but 
man, 800 pages is a lot to draw. Wow. So you studied art at uh, McAllister College in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. Uh, I took what? like three art classes. Oh, okay. So, so when did you start gravitating towards comics, or is that something you had always read? Uh, no, I didn't start reading them until I was an adult. Um, it's honestly, you could, you, it, it is the standard comic origin story, which is I dismissed comics as being for kids and someone held me down and made me read Sandman. And, um, uh, there's like probably 30,000 people who could tell that same story. And I was like, wow, comics. Okay. This, this is cool. This is, I could do this thing. This would be awesome. And uh, then I went and read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, and that paralyzed me utterly for almost a year, where I was like, I am not cool enough to do comics. Comics are very complicated. <laughs> and then one day I started doodling and put a word balloon on it, and then I did another page and another page and another page, and uh, a decade or so later, I wrote The End. <laughs> So going back to Harriet, what's next for you? You've got a whole series coming out? Oh, yes, yes. We uh, we have uh, six books so far planned. Wow. Um, the, uh, the next one uh, of Mice and Magic is based on the 12 Dancing Princesses, uh, which is a fairy tale about 12 princesses who, are, who dance their shoes through every night and are under a curse. And she has to, uh, she comes into the kingdom to figure out what is going on and discovers that there are some very strange things going on. And uh, the Mouse King is a very strange individual and probably more dangerous than the curse. So it's, uh, it's fun. Where, where do these curses come from in, in Harriet's world? Uh, well, in the first one, it's it's a wicked fairy named Ratshade who is who is an evil rat who has traded her tail for magical power, which is apparently a thing rats can do. Uh, in the second one, uh, it's it's another uh, individual, but uh, I don't want to give away too much about uh, who it is. Of course, no uh, no no spoilers for the children who listen to our podcast. <laughs> Are there children who listen to your podcast? Not that I know of. Oh, good. Well, uh, it's uh, uh, I, I think we have a uh, wicked witch, and uh, then one of the later books we have, um, I think another witch, and uh, we'll have an. Uh, I think book four is going to be based on Jack and the Beanstalk, and we will have an evil giant and no curses, but and a harp that wants to join start a heavy metal band. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like so much fun. Do you do you just get to to sort of bask in this? I mean, I know that you said that you have the the writerly moments of of gloom, but uh you also just must have such a trip putting these books together. Oh, it's it's it, it alternates. It is like wildly fun and sometimes and and then I, I have to come down a bit and be like, no, wait, I I can't go off on that mad tangent. The books are only 17,000 words long. I have to bring it back. Uh, but yeah, it, you can do so much with children's books that, that you can't really get away with in books for adults because they will, you know, the adults will look at you and be like, really, really? Whereas kids will be like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do more of that. So <laughs> they are a lot of fun to do. I, I have a great job. Even when, you know, the days when I'm like, I am a hack, I will never finish this book. <laughs> and uh, you had mentioned the Dragon Breath series. Tell us a little bit about those. 
Okay, um, the Dragon Breath series, we, we have 10 books out now, and book 11, the final book, is coming out next January. Uh, they, they're the story of a dragon named Danny who goes to a school for reptiles and amphibians, and nobody knows he's a dra fire-breathing dragon, because uh, he can't really breathe fire very well yet. Uh, and they just think he's one of those lizards that are called dragons, like Komodo dragons or bearded dragons or whatever. Uh, his best friend's an iguana named Wendell, and they go on these weird adventures uh, because Danny can sort of magically influence the bus system so he can take buses to all sorts of strange places. And he doesn't think there's anything weird about this. He always just says, what, it's a good bus system. And his friends are like, the bus has taken us to Romania. That This is not possible. It's like, what, it's a good bus system. We'll have to get a transfer. And uh, so it's, they're fun. Um, they're, I don't always know uh how I come up with some of the ideas, I'm just like, okay, this this book will take place in entirely in Wendell the Iguana's head because <laughs> he's having nightmares and it's a uh, a giant evil wasp that lays eggs in people's dreams has taken over his brain and they have to get it out before you know he uh, gets eaten by wasp eggs or something which is actually a thing that came out of the garden because wasps are really horrible and lay eggs in caterpillars and then they eat the caterpillar I was like that would be a terrible thing to have happen to your dreams I better have that happen to Wendell and, uh, <laughs> or Wendell <laughs> Wendell Wendell is is very brave, very loyal and but he's he's a hypochondriac and he's a coward and a lot of other things but he's still extremely loyal and he always comes through in a pinch and i like him a lot because i was much more like him than i am like danny so <laughs> <laughs> well your garden is a great source of inspiration for you it's clearly <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so with uh with dragon breath you had said that that had come out uh after your first book uh had, as you said, uh, kind of flopped. Um, how did you get it, it the... It the cur turned out four years later. <laughs> okay, that's good. Some books never earn out. So uh, what, what, what uh, kind of gave you the courage to, to uh, keep trying? Uh, it, that's an interesting question. Um, it, it didn't occur to me not to, mm -hmm. um, I suppose, would be the, the answer. It was like someone had bought the book, so even though technically it was a flop, I had gotten a check, like a big check, bigger than I'd seen in my life as a freelancer. So as far as I was concerned, it was a roaring success. I mean, yes, okay, it sold 8,000 copies or whatever, but dude, I had a check. <laughs> so um, I was like, this writing thing is amazing. I want to do more of it. Uh, it uh, really, it's it's all about what you expect to get out of something. And when you're an illustrator who is doing, you know, RPG illustrations for 50 bucks a pop. If somebody hands you a book advance money, you're like, oh yeah, this is great. I'll, I'll do this. <laughs> so has your, has your perspective shifted on that now, now that you've you know, had this very successful series of books, you're starting another series, you've self-published some books. How, how has that shifted your sense of uh, your, the shape of your career, I suppose? Uh, I, I am very bad at understanding what is normal now. Uh, apparently, um, Dragon Breath was was wildly successful. By by, I, I say this not it is it is all in the hands of the marketing team and Penguin. They made it so, but uh, I 
sort of assume my baseline got set to, of course, your series will have a million copies in print. And mm. that is not normal. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I, I call my agent up. I'm like, is this book tanking? I don't know. She's like, no, this is this is normal. And I'm like, but Dragon Breath, Dragon Breath was not normal. OK, OK, that's fine then. Um, so I I don't even know anymore. <laughs> as long as they send me checks, I am perfectly happy to write the books. So aside from Harriet, um, do you have anything else on tap? Uh, they have picked up a, uh, Penguin Dial who, who does Dragon Breath and Harriet is, has bought a book, the working title of which is Illuminations that I think will probably be out sometime in 2017. And it is a story about a girl who, uh, her family are painters of magical paintings that, and, uh, she accidentally sets a weird little monster loose in the studio who begins unmaking the paintings and it all culminates with you know big magical battle scenes drawing worrying art that comes to life and attacks each other kind of thing which uh, i think will be a lot of fun when i finally get it written um and i'm working on a retelling of the snow queen for my t kingfisher stuff which i has been i have been working on this book forever <laughs> So hopefully I will finally get it done. We've been talking with Ursula Vernon, and you can find her book, Harriet the Invincible, in stores right now. Ursula, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us how publishers and authors can profit from audio. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Anil Anantaswamy. I'm author of the book, The Man Who Wasn't There. Uh, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milley is here with us to talk to us about PW's recent um, audiobook summit. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hi. Nice to have you on the show. So this just happened this morning, this audiobook discussion. Right. Yeah. We put together uh, a panel of uh, four relatively high-powered people, um, had uh, representatives from Penguin Random House and Harper, which are most likely one and two in terms of uh, audio publishing. We had Audible. Which, mm. uh, as you know, is a large publisher and probably the largest bookseller right. of audio, especially digital. And then we had a startup from Canada called uh, Podium Publishing. Nice. Right. So, so audio audiobooks are hot. They're growing. Yeah, well, that's uh, one reason we did it, uh, because audio, it is their moment, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, we trotted out some statistics that showed um, audio sales at the retail level were of about 13.5% last year, and units are up, uh, you know, a little over 19. So how are people, how are people listening to them? Is it, uh, it used to be, I guess through CDs, and now maybe That's so yesterday, Mark. <laughs> so what are they, how are they listening to it now? Well, that's, that's the big driver in all this. It's, all, it's not all, but it's uh, quickly ramped up to digital downloads. Yeah. Um, you know, the statistics uh, that the Association of uh, Audio Publishers 
has out is about 77% of unit sales last year were uh, digital downloads. Mm-hmm. Um, and that compares to, you know, under 50% just like three years or so ago. Wow. So it's, it's really made a, a huge, huge difference in, in the audio market and, you know, all for the good. And do we know who's listening? Is it the same people who are listening to podcasts like ours, to radio stations, or audiobooks all that they listen to? Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, one thing they did take a look at was the, the gender breakdown. And it was only 51%, 49% in favor of female, which is you know, a little bit less than a typical reader. So there's a fair amount right. of males in there. Um, age groups were kind of all over the map. You know, nobody really, um, you know, dominating with a fair amount of uh, the younger crowd listening to digital. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're encouraged by that digital is really making it easier for especially, you know, native, digital natives, if you will, taking care right. of, you know, re- you're taking their smartphones with them and, and listening to digital. Yeah, I was wondering, where are they listening? I, I always think of people in their cars and only in their cars, but maybe on, <laughs> on the subway. You know, my, my partner Josh listens to them while he's doing the dishes. You know, if he's really? just cleaning up after dinner, he's like, all right, I'm going to put on my headphones. And then he gets in a chapter or two. Uh, so it's you, wow. They, well, you're both you're options. both right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends on kind of how you break it down. Um, you know, commuting was always number one. Right. Um, and if you put commuting to work and then traveling or on vacation together, that's still the largest place where people look. But if you just single things out, um, it's about 38 percent of people listen to it at home now. Wow. Which is something that is is different, and I know our you know our panelists you know all remarked on that how it has you know infiltrated the uh, the home uh, more than it has uh, in the past. And has there been? Did they discuss anyone discuss why it's been growing so much? Well, yeah, um, price. Uh, the digital is less expensive. Or? Way less expensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, CDs. And, Which we and, still get a lot of in the office, I see, when uh, Annie reviews them. Right. We still, yeah. And it's still a fair amount. Like, you know, 25 30% of the market is still CD-ish. Right. Um, but the prices are like half. Mm-hmm. And it's really obviously because the manufacturing costs are, are really cut in half. And there, you, you know, you see a lot bigger discount on the pricing than you did in you know comparing ebooks to to print books right um, interesting and it's made a huge huge difference if you look at any bestseller list ours included any of you matched what the physical cd sold compared to the um compared to the uh, digital download digital downloads are, are way ahead and you look at the prices i mean some cds are fifty dollars Wow. Which right. is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's made, it's made, you know, it's really made all the difference. And that has really encouraged publishers to ramp up their operations in turn. Um, this is a statistic we have in here somewhere where, you know, the number of, uh, here we go, the title output from, this is from about 20 publishers, one from about 6,000 in 2010 to almost 26,000 in 2014. 
Um, wow. So that's it's a big increase, Mark. In just four years. <laughs> In just four yeah, yeah, years. Yeah, that's and, huge. You know, how, how are they producing these books? Because I'm also, I, I have a couple of friends who are sort of peripheral to the audiobook world, and I start hearing about, like, full casts. And, you know, are, are these... Are they putting more money into more elaborate productions as well, in a, in addition to just producing more books? Definitely. A um, couple things that the panelists mentioned this morning was that um, the, the multi-voice um, recording, you know, is, is more and more. Um, you know, they really hire, you know, first-rate narrators. Mm-hmm. Somebody mentioned Dustin Hoffman. You know, Oprah has, you know, read a couple of her books. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing they've stressed is that the quality of each audio has to be really first rate because the biggest challenge they always face is getting people to try it. So -hmm. their fear is somebody will try it. The quality of the recording isn't that good. And they'll say, you know, I I don't want to do audio anymore. And then she pointed out that, well, look, if you read a print book, you don't like the book, you blame the book. (laughs) I mean, you blame the author. You don't blame that oh geez the production um, company right, right the production company so uh you know they, and they all really put an emphasis on um how important it is to get the quality right and the penguin random house amanda dorcherno was there she's the head of penguin random mm-hmm. audio she was mentioning how many studios penguin random has in the city and they're building another one um and she had some numbers about you know the hours of audio they've recorded it's all pretty impressive stuff. So with uh, with the audio books, or I should say, well, let's, go, let's talk to Audible a little bit. So they're not a publisher themselves. They aren't publishing books. Tell us a little bit more about audio. Uh, I'm sorry, Audible. Well, books. Audible is, is part of know, Amazon. They, they, they are part of Amazon. Yeah. Um, and they started as uh, like a subscription service, right. which they still are. Um, and you pay, uh, pay your monthly fee and you get a certain amount of, credits for books you can download Um, but they have started publishing their own books and a couple years ago they started something called ACX which is an audio exchange which looks to match publishers with narrators and that sort of thing Mm. and their Mm. goal was to increase the number of titles that are available because Audible their main concern back you know 2012 2011 was there wasn't enough mm-hmm. audio titles out there. So their goal through ACX and, to, and by starting their own little publishing division was to ramp up that that number. And it's worked really well. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, it's not a worry <laughs> anymore. No, it's not. You know, I, I think the number they said is since ACX started, they've had like 30,000 um, productions done. Wow. So, you know, that's, that's a lot. And they are, um, you know, they're, they're looking to do more. Hmm. And it seems like one of the things they don't have that the the other two publishers you mentioned, uh, I, I imagine that they just do best-selling books, Harper and Penguin Random, or books that are known to be bestseller. I don't think they would – do they spend the money on books that are maybe mid-list? Not too much. I mean, they will acknowledge that, you know, they look at what <laughs> – they look at the first printings, yeah, uh, right. as much as right. we try to look at the first printings, right. and, and they start there. And then they'll, they can obviously do um, ramp up something quickly if it, you know all of a sudden it looks like it's hitting a surprise bestseller. Right. They can do it quickly, because you know, digital is you know can go pretty quickly. And 
as much as we have print on demand for books, there's manufacturing on demand for the physical CDs now. And that most of the, um, the publishers now, when they decide to do um, a physical CD, they usually use manufacturing right. on demand, which means you can do shorter quantities pretty quickly. So prices are down. Production quality is up. Uh, production quantity is up. How much is this costing publishers? Are they still turning a profit on these, or, or is it more investment at the moment? Uh, judging by the way they're ramping up, I'm sure they're turning a nice profit. <laughs> um, because, you know, prices are down, as you say, but, um, you know, the costs are down. So, on that level, at least. Even so, with these multi-voice So, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what you're seeing is they, they take some of the money they might have put into... Um, into manufacturing, into, you know, upping the quality of production. Um, you know, we just heard a couple of weeks ago, Simon & Schuster said that their audio sales in um, uh, the second quarter up like 40%. Wow. I mean, so that's, that's really that's impressive stuff. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, and as much as it's being driven by digital, like we said before, the, the physical is still hanging in there. Right. Um, you know, they view it as important. Uh, format to have because people who are in the stores might just buy it quickly they also see it as what they, they call it a gateway to digital that if they really like it then be easy enough to, to go home and start loading up on digital sure yeah that makes a lot of sense so what what other lessons did we learn from this summit because it was sort of pitched as a as a how-to or you know how how audio can benefit you so was it from smaller publishers who were there? I mean, well, we had uh, one independent publisher. We had a panel of four, right. and we had you know turnout of over sixty people, and we streamed it. Uh, so I'm not sure what that number was. But Podium Publishing's in Toronto. They're a startup. They've done about 170 titles so far. Um, and he was talking about how they actually discovered The Martian, um, mm -hmm. and you know the. They had read it before it was even a book, right. and they acquired all the rights, and it was one of their first books, and um, you know, they managed to turn it into a hit, and then the, it got picked up for print, and then right. it's going to be a movie, as I understand, in the yep. fall. <laughs> so, uh, so Matt, they're, they're, Matt Damon the, said, yeah, I'll do this, <laughs> and just made himself the star, because he's Matt Damon, and he can do that. Yeah, right. So and that was... You know, that was a, a neat uh, story about how, you know, a smaller publisher, you know, can get, um, you know, can, can hit it sort of big. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's, you know, what are the tricks to the trade? You know, it's all about discoverability. I mean, it's the two-edged sword of all these, the title output is way higher than it ever was, but it means, you know, what do you do to make things stand out? Right. Um, you know, the two trade houses... Um, uh, really try to piggyback on on the print release, but you know Audible, they they don't really have any physical, so they right. everything is digital, it's all social media, and something you guys are familiar with. They do a lot of podcasting, mm -hmm. oh. um, and they do a lot of experimenting <laughs> with original audio, which may right. not be a full length book, um, which the, you know this, the traditional publishers really haven't. But, you know, they can see it as, you know, it might be an hour's worth of a podcast that an author might want to use, you know, between um, 
between books, especially if it's series, you know, mm-hmm. maybe to you know fill in a little background or something. So, I mean, when you listen to the Audible people, uh, they couldn't be more excited about the future of audio. That's that's great. Yeah, no, I I know there are a lot of podcasts for short fiction, also, um, which takes me all the way back to listening to NPR's selected shorts. You know, Twenty five years ago, they were definitely pioneering that but um it's really it's it's taken off i could name like half a dozen just science fiction and fantasy podcasts off the top of my head there's there's a lot of interest in that right so, and, yeah, and then of course serial you know set a whole new sure yeah new benchmark for it which you know all the publishers there were at the meeting today were thrilled with you know audible sponsored it but that was fine by them because it was just another way to get people interested in in audio all right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank yeah. you, Jim. It's uh, great to get your recap. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and uh, with, you said that it was streamed. Will that be archived on our site as well? I do believe so. Right. <laughs> you, you better check. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming by. It's always great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sabata here, author of An Ember in the Ashes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another thrilling author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 